0: We are in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20. We do want to remember that our Ventura campus is joining us for this sermon. Let's give them some love, Ventura. (laughs) Revelation chapter 20, we're going to cover about half the chapter, verses 1 through 10. Okay, and the title of this kingdom, (laughs) this kingdom, excuse me, this sermon is the Millennial Kingdom, the Millennial Kingdom, and that's a descriptive title. Now, I, I need to warn you about today's message. Today's going to be a little more teachy than preachy. It's going to be a little more like like a Bible study than a sermon, because these 10 verses are packed with information and really important information. And I was tempted to make these 10 verses a 10-week series, really getting into it deeply, which we easily could do. And you know, in the old days, I would have done that for sure. (laughs) 10 weeks on this one verse. Uh, But in the book of Revelation, we're trying to take a broad view and get the big picture. And the big picture of the book of Revelation is that though sometimes the world seems out of control, Jesus Christ, our King, is actually in control. And Jesus is returning to deal with evil, to confront wickedness, to establish His righteous rule and kingdom, and to undo all that has gone wrong. Amen? Amen. That's the big picture of the book. So we're going to kind of maintain that broad view of the text today, uh, but there's so much there that I'm going to get a little more teachy and you're going to have to maybe follow a little more than usual. So some of you, like your mom invited you here and you're in way over your head right now, bro, (laughs) way over your head, but we'll try to help you through it. Um, Because we can't dive too deeply on all the various topics, you know that we've put on the website sort of auxiliary Uh, sermons for the book of Revelation. So all the topics that come up, I dive more deeply in previous sermons. Today we'll talk about a little bit the resurrection of believers. It's a huge, huge, important doctrine that provides us with a whole lot of hope. So I put another sermon online for you guys to go listen to this week and brush up on the doctrine of the resurrection of believers, which gives us tremendous hope and joy as we live our lives. So I'm even going to approach the reading of the text a little differently. As I read through it, I'll pause occasionally to make a few comments, a few explanatory notes, just to get a few things out of the way, and then we'll kind of look at the big picture. So let's pray first, and then we'll read it together. Jesus, thank you for loving us, giving your life on the cross that we might have the forgiveness of sins. And new life, an abundant life. And thank you, Jesus, for your word that tells us that you not only died on the cross and rose from the dead, but that you're coming again to confront wickedness in the world and to set right all that has gone wrong and to establish peace on earth in your righteous rule. Thank you for this glorious truth. We ask that today as we read about it and study it that it would encourage us deeply We ask that you'd help us to understand your word. We're in a real meaty 10 verses here. Help us. Give us comprehension. Please help me to explain it in a way that's faithful and helpful to these men and women whom you love and whom I love. So help us now and bless us in your word. We ask it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you'll remember from the previous chapter that we've kind of gotten to the climax of the book. In chapter 19, Jesus returns. And we looked at that last week, the glorious return of Jesus Christ. And that's really the pinnacle, the apex, the climax of the whole book. That's what it's been moving toward is the return of Jesus Christ. We saw that, his physical, literal return. And today in chapter 20, we're seeing the implications of it. Okay, some of the implications, the establishing of his kingdom. So as he returns, the vision that John the apostle is receiving continues, and we'll pick it up in chapter 20, verse 1. It says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Someone say, hooray. That's good news. And threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Someone say, "Uh uh-oh. We'll explain that when we get to it later. Verse 4, and I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. This is a picture of believers, followers of Jesus Christ. And judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received a mark on their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now stop right there for a moment. You'll remember from chapter 13. 13. That we saw the rise of Antichrist in the world and Antichrist exerting his worldwide influence to such a degree that he told people, he told culture, told the world, listen, if you want to buy, if you want to sell, if you want to do commerce, if you want to make a living, if you want to get along in this world, you've got to pledge allegiance, so to speak, to me, right? claimed himself to be kind of the, the chief ruler of the world. Now, this is not so foreign. This was really the context in which the book was written toward the end of the first century with the Roman Empire and Caesar, right? And and, and the empire would pressure people to make this declaration, Caesar is Lord. The rub was that the church believed that Jesus was Lord. And so they were unwilling to say, Caesar is Lord. And now we say the same sort of thing in the culture portrayed in the book of Revelation in the future, that there's this antichrist sort of flow in the world, and this antichrist leader, and the push, the temptation, the pressure is to give allegiance to and primary place to someone other than Jesus. It's always a pressure. It's a pressure in the original context, it'll be the pressure then, and that's that's a reality for us now. And we saw in chapter 13 that those who refuse to do so endeavor to remain, faith, remain faithful to Jesus Christ, it costs them their lives. That was not a foreign thing to John's original audience. Many of those who read the book for the first time would be killed for their belief in Jesus Christ. They'd be persecuted. They'd die in the, in the Roman, <clears throat> what are those things called? Theaters and that whole gladiator thing, right? Christians were persecuted and killed in the Roman Empire. That'll be a reality in the future, the book seems to say. But that's not so far from us now. It's it's amazing to me that he uses the frame beheaded. If we had read this a few years ago, I would have said, wow, it's such such a term of antiquity. No one's beheaded anymore. And then we read about 21 Egyptian Christians on the beach. No one can forget that for their following of Jesus Christ, beheaded. This was a reality then. It'll be reality in the future. It's a reality now. The good news of the text is that it says in the last part of verse four that they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The good news of the book of Revelation is that death is not ultimate. Death is not final. Beheading is not the biggest deal. There is new life and eternal life in Jesus Christ. And that there is the resurrection, the physical resurrection of the followers of Jesus Christ too. the text says rule and reign with him in this manifestation of his kingdom, this thousand year period. Talk about more details in a moment. Verse five now. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This, meaning the resurrection spoken of in verse four, the resurrection of believers, is the first resurrection. So there'll be another resurrection that we'll talk about next week in the text. It's called the resurrection of the wicked to be judged. Next week we see the final judgment. We'll hold that for next week. Verse six says, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. Let's explain second death briefly. First death would be physical death, okay? Second death would be, it's hard to put a phrase on it. It's not spiritual death. It's called second death for a reason. Let's think about it this way. Both are the results of sin ultimately, right? God created us to live, not to die. Death entered the world through sin. And because of sin, there is death in the world and we will all die the the first death. And we might think of death sometimes as separation. Those that we love that have physically died are separated in some way from us. There's, There's a separation, as temporary as it may be. The second death is also because of sin, but we can speak of it in terms of ultimate separation. It is eternal separation from God. It's the judgment for sin for those who have rejected the forgiveness of Jesus Christ through the cross, and it is the ultimate eternal separation from God. It's not that they're annihilated and cease to exist. The first death isn't annihilation. You, You continue on in the next life. This is for those who reject the forgiveness of God through Jesus, are judged for their sins, as we'll see next week, and experience eternal separation from God. We might call it this nasty little thing called hell. That's what's in view with the second death. Those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ, again, it says in verse six, they are blessed to be part of that first resurrection, the resurrection into the kingdom. The second death has no power over them. Last part of verse six says, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. There's that phrase, thousand years again. That's where we get the term millennial for millennial kingdom. Verse seven, and when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. I'll offer some theories as to why that is as we move through the sermon. That's an interesting thing. Verse eight, and he will come out and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came upon the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them, divine judgment. Verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Someone say that's good. That is good news. The ultimate abolishment of the enemy that he himself is thrown into the lake of fire. This place that we know is hell. We often think of hell as this place where it's a big party and Satan is presiding over it. That's not the biblical picture. It's not a party. It's a place of ultimate separation from God. And Satan is suffering in it along with those who have rejected Jesus Christ. And this is good news that that is the end game for the devil. Because I don't know about you, but it causes a lot of trouble in this world. My life, your life, can I get a witness? Man, we have this saying because of this text. The next time the devil reminds you of your sordid past, you remind him of his horrific future. Amen. You just take them right to that verse, chapter 20, verse 10, and say, right there, sucker, that's you. (laughs) So a few details to get out of the way, and we need to just point out the major themes that begin to emerge in this text. These are the major themes that are in the text, and for the next few minutes, really about 40, we'll kind of talk around these major themes. The millennial kingdom, right, that's that thousand years that's being spoken of there. The temporary binding and permanent banishing of Satan, we we saw that. The resurrection of the believers, we alluded to that a bit. And most interestingly, the co-regency of believers with Jesus, the co-reign, the co-ruling, the partnering of believers with Christ in his kingdom over which he is king. We'll kind of dance around those major themes. The millennial kingdom, this thousand year period, in essence, what this is in Revelation chapter 20 is God reigning on earth through Christ, the King of the kingdom, as he always intended. God reigning on earth as he always intended. That was God's intent when he created all things was that God would rule and reign over it and that people would obey him and follow him and worship him. But there's been a rebellion. And so Jesus came as a savior. And when Jesus came to deal with sin through the cross of forgiveness of sins, he came preaching the good news of the kingdom, right? We see that repeatedly in the gospels. Jesus came and he announced that the kingdom was coming that it was here with his coming and that it was also coming. And he went around it, the Bible says, preaching the good news of the kingdom. Now there's a context for that. His listeners, his hearers were primarily Jewish. And so they had a Jewish, Jewish Bible, Old Testament understanding of kingdom. So that when Jesus came and said, hey, I'm telling you, that with my coming, the kingdom is arriving and the kingdom is ultimately coming, they understood without question that that meant that God's reign and rule was going to be reasserted in this world. That the rebellion against him would be dealt with. That wickedness and its results would be confronted. And that the rule of God, the righteous, loving, merciful just rule of God would be reasserted in this world. That's what everybody understood when Jesus said the kingdom is coming. And we see this sort of expectation for this righteous rule, lots of places in the Old Testament, but we'll look at one of the Psalms. I love the Psalms, Psalm 96. Here's kind of that expectation, that that feeling of it, okay, of the second coming and the establishment of the kingdom. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that it contains. Let the field exult in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. See this imagery? It's like this worldwide all of creation joy. Before the Lord. Why? For he is coming. That's what we saw in chapter 19, the coming of Christ. He is coming to judge the earth, right? To lead, to rule, to reign in the earth. That's the promise of the kingdom. He will judge the world in righteousness as opposed to the world's way of wickedness and the peoples with faithfulness, meaning justice, as opposed to the injustice that we see in the world. That is the kingdom expectation. That is what Christ is bringing to the world in his return. And it will be cataclysmic in the sense that it will change what this world is like. When sin is ultimately confronted and dealt with and Christ is present on earth, ruling and reigning, world conditions will be different. Isaiah speaks about it frequently. Here's a couple passages from the book of Isaiah. Now it will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains and it will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Talking about Christ ruling from Jerusalem. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. See, there's going to be a change when God is reigning on earth through his Messiah Christ is that people are going to want to know about the righteous ways of God. Would you admit that we very much live in a culture that doesn't want to know about the righteousness of God or or the ways of God that sees that as some sort of unfair conformity, some sort of ancient, outdated shackling of humanity? There's coming a day where the world is saying, we want to know about the ways of God. And they're streaming to Jesus in that desire. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations. Okay, this is a usurping of the UN. Thank you, God. He will judge between the nations. He will render decisions for many peoples. Now comes this famous passage that's written on the wall that's in front of the UN building in New York City. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Peace. Peace. Ultimate world peace. What the Bible tells us, bad news, good news, is that the only time that's ever come into the world is when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom, is when Jesus is making the calls, when Jesus is rendering decisions between nations. The good news is it's coming. It is coming with the coming of Christ, this world peace. It's not going to be through the UN. It's not going to be through the US administration. It's going to be through Jesus that is the ancient promise of God. I'm coming to assert my reign in love, in justice, in fairness, in kindness, and in grace and in mercy and it will bring peace to the world. Another passage about the transformation in the world when Christ comes. Look at this, this is interesting. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Right? Right now the wolves are eating the little lambies. There's this change in the whole nature of the world and the leopard will lie down with a young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fat lean together and a little boy will lead them. Isn't that cool? This harmony thing in creation, this whole harmony in the earth. Verse seven, also the cow and the bear will graze. their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the winged child will put his hand in the viper's den. That's fun. <laughs> Just little kids here, sneaky, sneaky. See, it's a, this is imagery, but it's a, it's a different existence. It's not, it's not, it's not a, a world of death anymore. It's not a world of violence anymore. It's not a world of war anymore. It's not a place of destruction. It's not a place of harm and fear. This is a peace of God coming with Jesus. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Here's why. Here's the change, the worldwide cataclysmic change. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what the coming of Jesus brings us, is the earth is full. That's robust language. The world will be overflowing with the knowledge of the Lord. And that will change everything because Christ will be physically ruling and reigning evidence on earth and everything changes when the king comes to set up his kingdom. Now, the Old Testament repeatedly predicted this future kingdom and its worldwide everlasting nature, Daniel chapter 2. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure. You know, as Americans, we feel like our kingdom will always endure. There has never been a kingdom in the world that endured. No matter what its merits, no matter what its liabilities, no matter what the possibilities, there's never been a kingdom that endured. This is, in Revelation chapter 20, the kingdom that endures. The kingdom of King Jesus, righteousness lasting forever. It's a literal physical kingdom, which changes the condition on the earth. It's a world filled with God's righteousness. This is nothing new. These are old promises that God made to Israel thousands of years ago. It's important that we realize, this far removed from Israel and and all that in the Old Testament, that God made these promises to Israel. The kingdom has to do with Israel. Look at this passage. "The the, The day will come, says the Lord, when I will do for Israel and for Judah all the good things I have promised them. In those days and at that time, I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line, speaking of Jesus the Messiah. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. In that day, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this will be its name. The Lord is our righteousness. For this is what the Lord says. David will have a descendant sitting on the throne of Israel forever. So this promise that we're seeing the fulfillment of in Revelation chapter 20 was first made by God to his people, Israel. And this promise includes in the book of Revelation the restoration of Israel. We could say generally right now that Israel does not recognize Jesus as a Messiah. Part of the end time scenario, part of what we see in the scriptures is that when Christ returns, they will recognize him as a Jewish Messiah. And there will be an en masse turning to Jesus and a restoration of Israel as God's people. Why? because God promised that he would do that to them. He promised that they would be part of this kingdom that would be everlasting. He made these promises to them, and these promises depend upon the faithfulness of God, not the faithfulness of Israel, as does our salvation. And God shows himself to be faithful to his covenants by saving Israel in the final scenario. We then, who are the church, also God's people, have been brought into through Jesus these promises made to Israel. We do not usurp Israel. We don't say, at least I don't say, that God is done with Israel and the church has replaced them. Israel is God's people that he's still working with and we also have become the church God's people and his plan is to bring us all into the kingdom under his righteous rule. The kingdom is effective for the whole world This is why we're told to preach the gospel of the kingdom to all the nations. Look at this. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man. Who's that phrase referring to? Jesus. Jesus. Good job, church. Coming with the clouds of heaven. What event is that? Second coming. coming. Good job, George. (laughs) He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world. You see that? The previous passage was very Israel-centric, but we see that these promises are extended to the whole world through Jesus. That's why Jesus told us to preach the gospel to the whole world, so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. The good news is that Jesus is the one that brings this kingdom as we've been seeing in the second coming, but initially in the first coming. Remember what Gabriel said to Mary in Luke 1. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. This is the central point of the book of Revelation is that Jesus is the true king who is coming to rule and reign in the true kingdom which consists of love and mercy, righteousness, truth, and and justice and the kingdom is centered on king jesus isaiah 9 a prophecy about jesus some 700 years before his coming for a child will be born to us you guys probably read this at christmas a son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders that's good news and his name is called wonderful counselor mighty god eternal father prince of peace There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. You know, pause right there. All peace that we see in the world right now is temporary in nature. The peace that Christ brings in his coming, there will be no end to the government of peace. It will be all pervasive, all touching, everlasting, transforming peace under Jesus Christ on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Justice and righteousness brought to the world. That's what's happening now in this picture in Revelation chapter 20. Remember in chapter 19, we saw the coming of Jesus. These are, as we've been reading about now, the implications of his coming. And what isn't to be missed in this picture is the fact that we are reigning with him. Did you see that? It was a couple times in the text. The end of verse verse four talks about the resurrection of believers and it says, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The end of verse six says, they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So that thousand years is this particular period of the kingdom, right? And it may be a exact number of time. It may just be symbolic of a long time. I believe that it comes after the arrival of Christ. And a key component of it, as I said, the whole thing about the kingdom is that God is His, reasserting His rule in the world. A beautiful picture here is that we are co-regents, co-rulers co-reigning with jesus not in the same way he's the only king it's not like he's a big king and we're all little kings and kingettes. no he's the king we're his subjects who are loved by him and who love him and so have a place in the kingdom what this is is a restoration of original intent that's what god intended God created the world and then God placed man in the world and said, now watch over it. I'm gonna rule and reign the world as a king over it, but I'm gonna do so through you, through my people. What we see throughout history is God chooses to work through his people rather than independent of his people. And in creation, we were all his people and he placed us in the garden and he said, be fruitful, multiply, subdue it, cultivate it this cultural mandate to be co-regents with God in the world. That was original intent. And that was only given to humanity. God didn't give that to sea cucumbers. He didn't give that to giraffes or to blueberry bushes. Only humans have this place in God's kingdom as representatives of, agents of his rule. And that's the way it was meant to be. But a rebellion took place, the fall of man. And so a savior was sent, Jesus Christ. And by saving people, by making people brand new, God was renewing and bringing back his promise of his people serving him in that way, of being his unique servants in the kingdom. It was a lost promise through the rebellion and the sin of humanity, restored through Jesus Christ, the Savior, ultimately realized when Jesus returns, reigns over earth, and we serve him. We become his cabinet, so to speak, his administration, his ministers. Priests are the word that is the word that's used here. Don't think of priests like Anglican or Catholic or any of that. It simply means those who do God's will all the time, and stay in God's presence. That's the idea there. We're gonna be doing the will of Jesus Christ all the time in, from, and with his presence. This is an ancient promise. Again, the book of Daniel. Daniel was having uh, revelation visions about the Antichrist and the Antichrist doing this stuff. And it says, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, God's people. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. There's that old promise. We take possession, so to speak. We have a role in, a place in the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. That is why, for that expectation, that is why the Jewish men, James and John, with this in mind, came to Jesus. You'll remember in the gospels and said, listen, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your right and your left? You remember that? And one of the gospels tells us they actually sent their mama to ask the question. Maybe it was Mother's Day. Sent their mama to ask the question. The point is this, they understood that at some point God was going to reassert his righteous reign in the world through his Messiah, King Jesus. And that God's people would have an important place in that kingdom of co-regency, working with God on his righteousness in the world. And they said, we, we, we want a really important place in that. And Jesus said, well, calm down, boys. That's, that's, not, that's not quite the way that it goes. Because of this expectation, in, in other words, you don't get to choose. You could be the first guy and the second guy. Because of this expectation is why in Acts chapter 1, after Christ's resurrection, the disciples say to them, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom unto Israel? Is this it? is this when you're going to rule and reign and we're going to do it with you? Remember that? And Jesus said, this is not the time yet. The time is here in Revelation chapter 20. Look at this promise that... I don't know, promise? Yeah, it's good. That Jesus said to uh, to Peter, excuse me, in Matthew, Peter said this to Jesus. I'm gonna be colloquial here and kind of make it up. Behold, or uh, look, Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. What's in it for us? Right, that's what he's saying there fancy Bible language. Behold, he sounds all profound and pietistic. He's not. He's saying, look, Jesus, we've left everything. I left the boat behind, the nets behind, my family behind, all my stuff. I'm following you. What's in it for me? We're like, Peter, you're such a punk. <laughs> so Peter to do that. But I, I don't know. I honestly often find myself asking the same question, saying the same sort of thing. Jesus' response is kingdom oriented. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the son of man sits on his glorious throne, this part of the book of Revelation, you also will sit upon 12 thrones. There's that promise of co-regency, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That was for the disciples, their particular area of leadership. Verse 29, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my namesake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. In other words, there's there's nothing in this lifetime that is worth clinging to in light of the kingdom. All the kingdom that you're building in this lifetime, all that stuff that becomes our personal kingdoms pales in comparison to co-regency with Christ and his eternal righteous kingdom. So don't put all your hope in your stuff now. Don't put all your stock in your reputation now don't build all your dreams on the things of this earth that won't last. There is a kingdom that lasts and you believer have a place in it of importance and anything that you sacrifice in serving that king now for the propagation of that kingdom now will pale in comparison to what you will gain. Isn't this good news? And so... When the original audience got the book of Revelation, they were a suffering audience. They were living under the Roman Empire. They were being persecuted. Some of them will be put to death. And the reason that the book of Revelation was given to them and is given to us, who also experience some sort of pain and suffering, is to tell us to hold on. The kingdom is coming again, and you have a place in it. Revelation, the early chapters. Jesus said, He who overcomes... And he who keeps my deeds until the end, I will give him authority over the nations, right? Stick with Jesus, it's worth it. He's coming to establish a kingdom. Verse 21 of chapter three, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on heaven. Overcome is book of revelation language for stick with Jesus. Because the temptation of them in an overwhelming anti Jesus culture was to not stick with Jesus. Right? Sometimes it was, it was too hard, or it costs too much, or it's just too against the flow, or it's too counterintuitive, or it's too whatever. And Jesus says, wait a minute, this world that's causing you so much trouble right now, and that you are simultaneously so in love with, is not ultimate. Stick with me. That's the language of overcome. Stick with me. You have a place in my kingdom. As priests, doing God's will all the time in God's presence. That's what we're looking forward to in the kingdom. And I would suggest to all of us that that, brothers and sisters, is ultimate pleasure. Doing God's will all the time in his presence. That is the place of true joy. That's true pleasure. But the enemy... And the world are always feeding us a different story, aren't they? Satan, the enemy here, right? Who's temporarily bound and then released at the end and then thrown in the lake of fire. It says a couple times there that he's the one who deceives the nations. How does he do that? Well, he's done that in lots of times. He did the ways he deceived Eve in the garden. He's always working deception. But one of the ways that he does it is by convincing us that there's better ways to pleasure, better ways to joy, and to satisfaction than obeying, following Jesus and living life in his presence. I mean, isn't that the deception, right? The enemy is always saying, oh, don't do that follow Jesus thing if you'll just take this, if you'll just assert yourself here, if you'll just exalt yourself there, if you'll just get more of these or you'll get more of those or you'll do more than that things that are contrary to God's will for your life. That's a way to pleasure. Satan is always deceiving us into the short-term payoff. Following Jesus is a long view sort of thing. Satan is always tempting us to the short-term payoff, and he's always showing us the pretty side of sin. The Bible's honest. Sin could be pleasurable for a season. But the end of it is always disappointment. The end of it is always brokenness. The end of it is always bondage. Jesus came to give us true joy, not disappointment. To set us free from bondage. Jesus came that we might have life and life abundantly. The deception of Satan is all these shortcuts which are sin, right? But true pleasure in the kingdom will be serving God, doing Christ's will all the time in his presence. That is also true pleasure pleasure now because may i say what we all know is that the kingdom is not only coming the kingdom has already come right the kingdom came when christ came the first time it is already here christ made that explicit it is also coming it says already not yet nature of the kingdom Already here working in our lives, not yet here coming in fullness in the world when Christ rules and reigns in righteousness. But we are already members of the kingdom. So we begin to live out right now the qualities of the kingdom. If the qualities of the kingdom are righteousness and justice and peace and all those things, then we become purveyors of, right? Those things because our king is a righteous king and the prince of peace, then we pursue righteousness. Because he's the king who's bringing justice, then we pursue justice right now. The good news of the kingdom has been announced. God's reign is present in the world now through his people and the work of his spirit. So we engage in these things now. So right now, in case you're wondering, true pleasure. True joy in life is serving Jesus and cultivating time in his presence. I mean, can I get a witness? And can I get a witness of how many of us tested that and went as far as we could in the other direction? That's a ripoff of the enemy. Those false promises, those empty lies. But we are members of the kingdom who live in joy because we've been forgiven. We have a new heart and God's spirit is in us. And when the kingdom comes, we will have resurrected bodies. No, no, that's better than you made it sound. We will have resurrected bodies. That's what we saw in the text. It came back to life. That is a doctrine of the resurrection of the believers, which we can explore further and we will in a moment. It means that there's coming a time after this body gives out and we die that we're given new bodies that are no longer subject. No longer subject to sin, to decay, to death, to sickness, to all these frailties. No longer subject to those things. This is an ancient promise again, like all of these promises, Isaiah. But those who die in the Lord will live. Their bodies will rise again. Those who sleep in the earth will rise up and sing for joy. For your life-giving light, speaking of God, will fall like dew on your people in the place of the dead. Look at that promise. Jesus reverberated it in the gospels. He said, don't be surprised, indeed. I'm really telling you, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son and they will rise again. This is the New Testament expectation. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. And this is Orthodox belief. Orthodox means right. This is right belief. Look what it says in Thessalonians. For since we believe, God's people, since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, do we believe that? It's right belief. We also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. That's exactly what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 20 verse 4 coming with Jesus into this glorious kingdom where we have a place being restored to our purpose and original intent. And so that becomes our great hope. Philippians chapter three, our citizenship is in heaven. We ultimately belong to the kingdom of heaven is the idea. And we eagerly await for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of the second coming. Who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, that's the kingdom, by that same power will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Someone say, Thank you, Jesus. That means that there is coming a day where the difficulties and the hindrances of this time, death, decay, Brokenness, the the sin nature, susceptible to sin, will no longer be present. And the enemy is bound in the abyss for this thousand year period. So there's no deception. No Satan prowling around like a roaring lion. No lies being cultivated in culture. No untruths being broadcast through media. It is the truth, the righteousness, the presence, the leading, the power, the people of Jesus Christ. Original intent restored. Now, let's deal with that messy little part at the end. Verses 7 through 10. When Satan is released again. Why? 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 Everything was going so well. Why? Well, if, uh, I don't know. But, and I don't know if anybody knows. Most commentaries that you read, they don't, they don't say much about that point. That's, that's a little bit of a doozy. But as you would expect, I have a theory. Here's where I f- finish. So follow with me for just a couple more minutes. This is an interesting part about this kingdom. Okay? This is how it differs from chapter 21: New creation, New heaven and New Earth. There will be people who went through the tribulation period, survived it, and Jesus returns. Now when Jesus returns, he returns with those we saw it last week and we're seeing it here with those who are His, Christians who have died, right? in resurrected bodies. but there will be people that hadn't died live through that period of God's wrath poured out in the world and the Antichrist and all that stuff, see Jesus return, repent and become members of the kingdom, immortal bodies. So they'll still have to deal with the sin flesh nature like we do now. They'll be regenerate, born again, saved, but they'll still have this struggle of the the sin nature. Satan will be bound. So it's not gonna be such a big deal. We will be there in glorified bodies, not susceptible to those things, ruling with Christ. Christ will be there, present, righteousness. So people aren't gonna be longing for falsehood and for sin and unrighteousness. They're gonna be longing for truth and righteousness in Jesus. But they will be, because they're still in mortal bodies and they're having offspring, it's a thousand years, it's a long time. Those mortals will still be susceptible to sin. And when Satan is released, it shows us clearly that some will, just like the garden, just like now, follow him in rebellion. Why would God allow that? Because every person in flesh has to choose Jesus Christ. In the kingdom, when Satan is bound and Christ is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, not allowed choice, pretty much a no-brainer. The astounding part, and don't we marvel at this today? Don't we marvel at this today? Is that people could hear the good news about Jesus Christ, see the truth about Christ and walk away from it, rebel against it. That, that'll be the case then. I'll tell you why I think this happens. Here's what I think it proves. I think it proves that only God is righteous and humanity is ultimately sinful and so in need of a savior. I think this proves that our follies are not merely functions of our environment. Socialists, or socialists, not socialists, (laughs) sociologists would say today, you know, if we could just get them in a better environment, if we just got people in a better environment, if we just gave them a better place, then they wouldn't do those things. Those things would, in our language, be sin. But wasn't the garden the perfect environment? And isn't that where we first sinned? And so then, so then God endeavored to lead his people and, and God, God dealt with sin in the flood and then God led his people Israel out of Egypt miraculously and he led them visibly and physically through the pillar of cloud during the day and the pillar of fire during the night and he brought them righteous rulers and they also had bad rulers and people still rebelled even though they knew that God was God and so he sent his son Jesus to announce the coming of the kingdom and to be the king who would suffer on the cross in their place and rise from the dead proving that he's the only savior of the world and still people would rebel and reject him. He came and they crucified him. So he sent his Holy Spirit into the world to convict the world of righteousness, sin and judgment. He put his spirit in his people and created the church that we might be his instruments of righteousness, his representatives in the world and still... Given the, toy, the choice, people rebel. People reject them. And so what we've seen in the book of Revelation then is that Jesus pours out visible wrath on the world in a measured, patient, progressive way, always leaving room for men and women and children to repent of their sins and be forgiven and enter into the kingdom. And still, people reject them. So Christ returns physically, visibly, establishes righteous rule. There's peace On earth. And given the choice, still, people reject him. The next part of the text will be the great white throne judgment. Final judgment. Final judgment can only come after full and final proof of the sinfulness of humanity and the righteousness of God. And then, once that is all done away with forever, comes new creation. Chapter 21. You see, in all these things, God is proven to be righteous and just, holy, loving, merciful, but right in his judgments. And humanity is shown to be otherwise. And the great promise of this all, last verse, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, said beautifully in the prophet Isaiah. God will remove the cloud of gloom. You guys know what gloom is like. We live in this area. The shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. In that day, the people will proclaim, look how beautiful this is. This is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord. For whom we have waited, let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That's our proclamation. This good news, this kingdom, this is our God. For whom we have waited, he's come. For whom we have waited, he's coming again. Let us rejoice and be glad in this salvation and be faithful to Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of his name. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord for this beautiful truth and the way that it helps us to think about our world and our lives. and Thank you, Jesus, that we have a righteous king. And we just ask that you would help us to live faithful lives in light of that. Lord, I'm aware that there may be people here who have never put their faith in you and trusted you for the forgiveness of sins. And hearing this today, they know that, God, you love them You sent your son for them. That Jesus, you are the king. Gave your life in their place that they might have the forgiveness of sins and new life. I pray that they would put their trust in that today. They'd say in their hearts, Jesus, I need need to be forgiven. I know I'm one of those ones who have rebelled against you. I want to enter your kingdom. Forgive me. Thank you, God, for those who pray that you flood their hearts with grace and mercy in a true sense of forgiveness and your presence, and that they would and that we would all together endeavor to follow you, to obey you, to live out these glorious kingdom truths right now in this world as we're waiting for you to come. And Lord, we would pray as a church, help us to be faithful with the gospel of the kingdom, that you'd loose all of our lips, that tomorrow in the workplace, tomorrow in the schools, tomorrow night around the dinner table, in our relationships, Surfing, playing, having fun. We would also be announcing the good news that the kingdom has come in Jesus and that Jesus is coming again with the kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.